Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Brown Skin Speaks Radio. I am your host for this evening, Wednesday, February 23rd, and I go by the name Brownskin. Tonight's episode for the Black History Month series is called Mental Health Issues, Taboo in Black America. In our community, mental health, mental health issues are seen as taboo and oftentimes ignored. According to data from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, in 2008, 6% of African Americans aged 18 to 25 had a mental health illness. Most cases go undiagnosed and untreated for various reasons. Tonight, my guests join me to discuss the mental health disparities in the black community, breaking the stigma, and the access to care available. My first guest is Krishana Shelton. With a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in social work, she began as an in-home counselor and is now working full-time in a child development clinic, in addition to being an outpatient therapist at Christian Psychotherapy, where she sees children, adolescents, families, and couples. Experiencing a broken family of her own, assisting in building stronger family foundations became her life's work. Currently pursuing her license to practice independently, I welcome Prashana Shelton. Hey, lady. Hello. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Um, My next guest is Stephanie Jackson-Lefanja. With a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in clinical community psychology, and postgraduate studies under her belt, she currently serves as a clinical service manager for the Hampton-Newport News Community Service Board. She's also a behavior specialist at the Virginia School of the Deaf and Blind. This career choice came naturally to her. Currently, her and her husband um, have a private company offering a comprehensive system of care that holistically addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual development of the youth and families with a touch of community service as a motivating value. I welcome Stephanie Jackson of Fonja. Hi, Hello. good evening. Good evening. How are, How are you? you doing? I am doing well. Thank you, ladies, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, yeah, thank you. Join in on the discussion at 347-202-0591. So, ladies, I know both of you all have a strong background in psychology and clinical work. Starting with you, Stephanie, what led you uh, to pursue this career? I think um, it was more more natural. You know, I feel like I've always been a natural helper, and I see this career as being um, a helping professional and wanting to help young people especially to realize their potential and um, to realize that they are um, valuable and to just real recognize that, um, they can be whole spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, behaviorally, and wanting to contribute to their overall success. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it really was a, it really just felt natural. I went to school originally to do work with young people and what I thought would be pediatric kind of work in a medical setting. And when I began to take psychology courses, I was immediately attracted to the content um, and to the practice of it, and I've been just doing it ever since. Okay. Okay. How long has that been for you? It's been about going on 15 years now, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, about almost 15 years. I've been at the Community Services Board for, um, this is my 14th year there, um, and I've been, we've had our own um, business for about three years, and um, I've done other things, you know, um, and consecutively with that. Okay, 
Yeah, yeah. Hey, and Koshana, what about you? What led you to this this wonderful career, um, you know, psychology and clinical work? Well, I actually have somewhat of a similar story to Stephanie. Um, I started off as a chemistry pre-med major thinking I was going to be a pediatrician, but I've always had a desire um, to help and serve others and to be in a position where I could just lend some assistance to people who are broken, people who have um, issues, people who have good times, bad times, but also just to be able to display love towards others and show them what it means to be loved, how it feels to be loved, and how they can show that to the people who they're in relationship with. And I find that I'm able to do that in so many ways in this particular field. And so it's very rewarding for me, but it's also something that comes very natural to me as far as being able to listen to others and being able to help others in any way that I can. And, and again, what you said in the introduction, coming from a broken family, my parents divorced when I was young, and that really impacted who I was as a woman, who I was as a person. And I felt like there is something to this. Family is your first foundation, and I wanted to research and really learn about what it is that makes families work and what is the impact on your family, uh, what is the impact of your family foundation on who you are as a person. And that's kind of what drove me on a more personal level. Yeah, so with you coming, you know, as you said, and, you know, coming from a broken home, what effects does that have on you personally and, and why is it important to have a strong family foundation when you're working with these families? Well, you know what, I, I really strongly believe that your home is your first classroom. And when you when you grow up, you learn a lot of things from your parents, from your mom. You learn what it is to be a woman. You learn how it is to be treated as a female um, by a male from your father and your relationship with your father. And having my father in my life um, for probably the first 12 years in the home and then having him removed out of the home, that was a major transition for me. Um, and, and and I think I lost something very significant. I was able to, you know, reconnect later on. But I think that um, for me, and, and studies show that children who grow up with an absent father, um, they're more likely to experience things that children with intact fathers wouldn't, such as, you know, promiscuity. Um, they have criminal rates that are higher. They have higher high school dropout rates. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't have to experience any of that, but it was an emotional impact of me just missing my family unit as a whole and having to share different households and go to one household for a weekend and come back. So, I mean, I think it, it did a lot, um, but not now, so much as I couldn't bounce back. <laughs> right, of course, of course not. With, with both yeah. of you all, in your line of work, what are some of the common issues or, or disorders that you all have encountered? Definitely, you can start first with that. Well, so many. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times we see mood instability, um, and in young children we find a lot of hyperactivity and inattentiveness. Um, But when we think about, when I think about just behavioral kinds of problems, I think about young people who have experienced trauma and who have some acting out behaviors as a result of that. Many times um, our young people experience things growing up and in their families and disruption and loss, and as a result they find negative ways to cope with that, and in doing so they act out, they have negative behaviors, and um, it tends to look like or mirror some of, some other disorders. But, in fact, oftentimes we find that it's related to some kind of traumatic life event. 
And I mm. think that a lot of times what we what we've been seeing um is not as much of um as significant of a mental health disorder as we may have thought sometime, but just some trauma that has been unresolved, that has not been dealt with in our families and um, in, with our young people. Krishana, some of these, are these some of the things that you've seen too, or have you seen different um, other common threads uh, dealing with some of the families that you, that you deal with? No, I definitely think that they're along the same lines, and um, many of the Many of the troubles that you see with the children are stemming from some of the traumas, the early traumas that they experience, whether it's physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Um, and so that's a that's a common thread throughout the clinic and also throughout private practice. Mm. Now, I, I remember, Stephanie, when you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, you had mentioned the term trauma-informed anxieties and the importance of recognizing cues. You know, for those that don't know, what what does trauma-informed mean and, and how is that affecting us or affecting those that, that grow up in these types of uh, environments? Well, I think, you know, as clinicians and as people who work in helping organizations, we have to be very careful not to re-traumatize individuals, and we have to understand that um, just visiting our systems alone can be traumatic. You know, a lot of times people are coming with um, so many different backgrounds and so many different issues and so many different experiences, and we expose them or we uh, have them to encounter um, even further trauma in our clinics and in our organizations and in their quest to get seek help. You know, um, a lot of times just our testing situations and um, the questions that we ask and the different people that they have to come in contact with. And, you know, just even um, the staff, different staff people that a lot of our young people and families have to interact with. And I think we just have to be, as a as a society, be more informed about different traumas that young people and families have experienced, be sensitive to it, um, and stop, you know, it's almost like a blaming the victim syndrome when you, when mm-hmm. the, someone comes in for help, you know, and they feel like this was probably the worst choice I ever made. I feel worse leaving here than I did coming in. Um, and we have to kind of shift our focus from what um, what did you do to, you know, what happened to you. You know, and I think once we start aligning with with our families and our young people and understanding that oftentimes something has happened to them that um that has been traumatic or something has happened to them that needs to be dealt with that needs to be addressed um in a clinical environment and not you know so much focused on the behaviors and what they're doing now and and um how they're acting out and how they're not performing well in school and you know just all of these different symptoms we have to realize that the symptoms relate to something else and we have to find what that is and we have to do it collaboratively we have to do it hand in hand with the family we have to do it in a less blaming way um you know in a way that's more accepting that in a way that will welcome our families and that they want to get help um and not you know not be sorry that they ever came to visit us in the first place right which is really important which leads me to our next point you know when i was doing some research you know obviously for us mental health and 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 illness is it's very taboo in the african american community no one wants to talk about it it's often ignored, but for various reasons, some of them being the stigmatization behind it, you know, do they look crazy amongst their peers, or are they getting support from their families, There's, um mistrust of, of health professionals, um, cultural differences, 
and socioeconomic barriers. Thoughts on this, um, especially uh, the mistrust of health professionals um, and, and the socioeconomic barriers. Kashana, you can you can go ahead first. Um, you touched on something that's really important, especially within the African American culture. A lot of times they look to extended family members, close friends, ministers, church leaders, um, or church family as their initial support system. Um, And a lot of the times when you're looking at the black community, they are not actually being self-referred or calling in for help themselves. Some of them are actually being referred by the court system. They're also being Mm -hmm. referred by schools, hospitals, social welfare agencies. So it automatically sets up a stage of defense because I'm being forced to come here and I'm not sure if you're giving me the correct information because maybe I don't have the right insurance. Maybe I have Medicaid and the the quality of care that you're giving me is a lower level of care. Um, And so sometimes they do run into those types of issues that make you feel as if you don't want to trust the professional who's supposed to be giving you the advice you need to survive, the advice you need to live. Um, And I think that, again, with the African-American community, it can be very it can be very hard in, in breaking that stigma of not wanting to be labeled as crazy or not wanting to be labeled and keeping family business within the family, you know. I'm I'm go ahead, I'm gonna let you go to Stephanie. Actually, I'm glad you made that point though, Kushan, and I wanna address it after Stephanie expresses her thoughts. Well, I, I agree with that that a lot of times the African American community has looked within to um to uh, address a lot of the issues that we call clinical now. You know, many times it wasn't viewed as clinical, it was just viewed as some type of family problem. Um and I think a lot of that comes from um not being able to trust individuals and also I agree being forced into services or being discovered and then um made to go to these services, discovered by CPS, discovered by your school by the school environment, and we become um, to label these individuals with with disorders and different things that may not even be so, but it makes the family and the young people very um, concerned and very um, scared and very anxious about the systems that they're entering into. And safety and trust has to be earned. It has to be felt in order for um, our people to enter into these different systems and feel um, like they can really be helped. And I think a lot of times, you know, we uh, the people who are on the other side are demeaning and they're demanding and they're belittling. And, you know, our people feel like uh, that they've lost control. And when they feel like that they have no control over what's going on with them, they tend to become really resistant to the process um not understand the not understanding the process even well to begin with that's the other thing I think a lot of times mm-hmm. we as professionals don't spend enough time with our families helping them to understand what this process is about. Um, This is what we want to do. We want to work with you. We want to work with you to help you to get your family and get yourself to a place where you can thrive, where you can function, um, where you can be as functional and and do what other people are doing. You know, I think we we leave them and we don't work with them. We want to be um, work and walk alongside with our families and help them to earn our trust and um, partner with them, you know, not do this with them, not to them kind of thing. Right. And I think that helps our people to be to buy into the process and, you know, not just see it as a way of controlling them, you know, a way of enslaving them almost to these systems, to, to the court, to the social services, to CPS, you know, child protective services. 
Um, and I think sometimes our people feel like they've lost control and that they're just enslaved to these systems and they don't want to work with them. Can I add add something to that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, Another thing, too, which she she made me think about something, especially within the in-home process, a lot of times when you're opening up about something that's um, close to you, something that's impacted you emotionally, and then this person is here for three to six months and then they're gone, it leaves you in a very vulnerable place, and it makes you Mm. feel like, I can't talk about this to this person because I don't know when they'll be back. I don't know if they're going to come back, when I'll see them again, what are they going to do with that information. And you can also feel like that within the outpatient setting because you're giving over information that's close to you, information that makes you feel vulnerable, information that you're not even sure what to do with, and then you don't know what that person will do with it. You don't know if you ever see them again. You don't know if you ever hear from them again. So that also, you know, impacts their ability to trust you as a clinician. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is true. true. That's true, and that further contributes. You're listening to um, Mental Health Issues, Taboo in Black America. Feel free to call in with any questions or comments at 347-202-0591. Now, I know you all both made this point. I know, Krishana, I had said this earlier as well. Um, you know, black families are very religious. So you grow up and you're told what's family business is family business, why would you want to go see somebody that's a stranger and let them in or what's going on? But then it's, it's when you can't turn to your family, you know, mm-hmm. then who do you turn to? And then even with um, you saying, like, the, them being forced to go from, from the court system, you know, what? how have you all been able to overcome these, these blocks in your career? How how has your organization aided in, in this transition of caring for, supporting, and building that trust back in the youth and families. Uh, so, Sean, you can go first. Um, with me, the most important thing is establishing an authentic relationship with whoever I'm working with and making sure that they know that my motive is pure behind why I'm here. Because, again, it's not my process. It's not what I think you need to be doing. It's about what you feel you could gain assistance from from me. And I want to make sure that they know that I care about them, number one, as a human being, um, and that they know that I'm there for them just to help them move through the process. I think that's the most important thing because when you when you feel like somebody is there just to boss you around or control you or tell you what you're doing wrong, what you're not doing right, um, then it can become something more of a, of a battle between yourself and the client. So that's one thing I really try to do is to be very open, be very honest, and make sure that they know that um, that I will be consistent. Um, one of the things I like to do is make sure we set up some types of boundaries in the beginning so they know when I'm coming or how often I'll be there, and they can expect it. So it can be something that they can learn that this is consistent. I can trust her. She said she would be here. She's here in this time where I said we had an appointment at 6 o'clock. She's there at 6 o'clock. She didn't cancel on me. Um, those are the things that I try to do to really establish trust in the beginning because if you don't trust the person that you're talking to, you're not really going to change. There's no there's no effective treatment without trust, without a relationship with the person you're expecting to get some help from. So that, that's where I start. And what about you, Stephanie? I agree that the development of rapport is extremely um is extremely critical to having any kind of success with helping to change families and change young people. And I think that, you know, you do that by um 
helping the collaborating with the family and empowering the family and um, making them feel safe and, you know, helping them to overcome any kinds of um, barriers such as language or culture or, um, you know, giving them choices. Um, And a lot of times I think um, our families just want to feel like we're – we're working with them and that we hear them. Um, they want to understand the services. They want to understand the relationship of the service provider um, to them as it relates to them. Um, and I think that, you know, once we do try to do a better job of engaging them that way, we, we would get a lot further. I think the other thing is not to come right into a family's home or into a family situation acting as if we are the expert. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of times I tell families, you're the expert on your family. You know your child better than anyone does. You know your child better than me, any doctor or anyone. So I'm not the expert. You're the expert, and I'm looking to you. I need you. You know, if you're not, if you don't assist me, there's no way I can help you. So I need your help first. I need you to be a part of this process from start to finish. Um, and I, I let let them know that, you know, um, what's going on with their child is best told from their perspective. And then we can collaborate and work together to try to figure out how we can help um, to some of the symptoms to go away or um, to drive some of the symptoms away. But that's not our primary goal. Our primary goal is to help them to, to be whole and to be safe and to help them to feel that, um, you know, the services that are being provided to them really will be of a, of a benefit if they will engage them. Have you all dealt with, or well, maybe let me let me rephrase this: What type of resistance have you all dealt with, and, and how did you resolve that, um, Kashana? This um, is for both of you, all, but Kashana, you can start first. Sometimes within family therapy, there's resistance from uh, fathers uh, more so than mm. anything, not wanting to let someone come into their world, into their territory, and um, even be a part of the helping process. Um, There's often been resistance when it comes to, sometimes in families you get those people who, um, you get families sometimes that have woes where this is the, she's the troublemaker, she's the one who's causing all the issues. And so just being able to break that frame of thinking about an individual in the family that they think may be causing a problem. Sometimes you get resistance there. And then what happens in a family when you fix the problem? Because sometimes families get, okay, this is the way it's always been. So-and-so causes the problem. we always at the school for this person or we're doing this, we're doing this. But what happens if we fix it? What are we going to argue about then? What are we going to talk about then? How will it change us as a family? And will is it going to be a scary change, you know, or can we accept the change? Can we move past the change. So I think those are some of the things that I find um, as uh, being resistant. And sometimes if a person doesn't recognize if they're being forced into treatment, as she said, or if they're being mandated to come by court and they don't feel as if they even have a need to be there, you automatically get resistance sometimes because it's this is not my choice to be here. This is someone telling me to do this, so I'm just going to go through the steps um, but I'm not really going to work on the inner issues or what I feel um, could possibly help me to to move on from where I am. And I agree that you know a, a lot of the yeah. time go ahead, the, go ahead. 
Okay, the, the the families that when I'm introduced to a family many times um, to do clinical work, the family is right on the verge of disruption. And so um, there's mm. typically a parent who's saying, I can no longer care for my child. I do not want my child in the, in the home any longer. Um, I've done all I can do. I'm done. And so when you get to that place, we're coming in at that place. You're already coming in, you know, on the tail end of um of some pretty significant problems and i think you have a, a really difficult time in the beginning just trying to really help the family to understand that you're a system you depend on each other you need each other um this is your child and you're responsible to your child and um we're going to work together to resolve some of these issues so that you can be a family and that you can remain together but i think a lot of times the resistance comes in i don't want this work because i don't even want this child here in the first place um, and this is in our culture. I mean, this is in our community. I think a lot of times there's a myth that a lot of our people will not say that about their children, um, that they can no longer care for their children and then they can no longer parent their children, no longer wish to. But the truth is a lot of the young people that I um, come to know, they have become very oppositional to their parents' directives. They have um, started to, to, to violate people in the family, either sexually or by stealing or um, by not following rules. And a lot of our people do not want to or feel like they have to or need to deal with those kinds of intense behaviors. And what they want to do is say, if you can't live by my rules and if you won't do what I tell you to do, I don't want you here. You can't be here. And the real truth is that's not an option, you know, for a minor child. Um, You just can't give away your child. But they come to the counseling situation with so much resentment and anger um, towards the child for being, for having these acting out behaviors. And then they have a very difficult time understanding how the whole system has contributed to this and not just, you know, the child is a symptom of the system, of the family symptom, and that the child isn't doing this in isolation and everybody is going to have to make changes in order to see the family to be more successful. Do you think that, um, because it's it's not a secret, of course, when it comes to percentage of care for, for, for blacks and, uh, and then the care for others, do you think that it's perpetuated, the the the, the, the lack of care for our, our our community? Do you think that's perpetuated by others, by the system, by by society? Or are we adding to that um, perpetuation, Stephanie? What care meaning mental health care or um, you mean? Yeah, just so you know when they come in and and you know so say if 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 I I send my child to come see you and 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 um, you know you do the follow up you do you go through the process maybe three months six months and after that it's kind of like there's no follow up after that you know what I mean like there's mm-hmm. no how is this child doing let me check up on this child you do what you had to do for that time being and then you move on to the next it's almost kind of like you're 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 forgetting about the people that you work with like how. How is that working? How how I think you know it depends on what system that they've been introduced to the um, clinical process yes. with. You know, different sy- systems tend to back out of the process sooner than others. And for in other words, if a child is coming into a treatment situation and being referred by Child Protective Services, you'll find that when the um, home is no longer presenting a danger or risk to the child, that agency or that that service tends to back out and um, the services are just kind of left there to um, do what they do. You know, when you find that whereas mental health 
professionals, when they are referred by a mental health agency or like a community services board or something, they tend to stay in and provide a continuum of care for young people that tends to sustain success, such as a step-down plan. You know, like um, you start with intensive in-home, but then you can remain at the agency and receive outpatient counseling. You can receive case management, and you can receive medication management. And you can follow um follow up and continue to receive treatment as needed or as dictated by the child's symptoms. I think, you know, it kind of all depends on how they're introduced to the treatment process, what their original needs are relative to what their needs end up being um, at the end of the three- or six-month short time frame. Kushana, mm. have you seen some of this as well, you know, our, our – you know, with, with the children or the youth and the people that you talk to, adolescents, families, uh, when they're introduced to you, is the process follow through completely, or is, is you know, have you have you seen that at all? Um, with children who are in foster care, I find that the follow through process is not um, not as it should be. A lot of times with right. the children shifting through different homes, things, the ball gets dropped somewhere along the line. They were supposed to have a medical appointment to follow up on something, or they were supposed to go to one therapist for play therapy, then they switch, you know, to a different home, and so someone lost the records or someone didn't know that they had an appointment here, and then they have to start all over again. So I do find that it's um, there's a lack of care and a lack of consistency, whether it's mental health or just health needs in general with that population. Um those who are referred on an outpatient basis, they tend to have more follow-up, and it depends on the clinician. Are you concerned enough to call to check in six months or eight months or a year following services to find out how are you? Is there anything that we can do together to make this process better? Um, you know, if it's good news, progress, whatever. So it's up to you as a clinician to be able to, be able to say, I'm going to follow up and take the initiative to find out how my client is doing. One thing I wanted to talk about, too, and I know we're talking a lot in the, in the frame of children and families, but some resistance when you find with couples, you find the same things. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to walk away from this situation because I'm tired of this. I can't use my words. That's what it basically boils, boils down to, problem-solving communication within a couple setting and being able to work through the issues that you see with your significant other instead of throwing in the towel or walking away from the relationship. And that also happens not just with children and families and you're frustrated with your child, but also in relationship with the opposite sex. Mm. Now, if you're just not tuning in, you're listening to Brown Skin Speaks Radio, uh, Mental Health Issues, Taboo in Black America, Join me on the discussion at 347-202-0591. I was having a debate earlier today um, with my friend, and one thing, you know, I, I have an issue with um, the medical industry constantly prescribing all these toxic medicines and acting like medicine is the, the only cure or quick fix. To me, that, that doesn't really resolve anything. It really kind of scratches the surface dealing with symptoms. How do you all feel about um one misdiagnosis and 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 then just two just medication period when it comes to your patients, whether it be children or or um, adolescents or even adults. Um, Stephanie, if you want to chime on that first, chime in on that first. Um, I think that you know definitely there are lots of alternatives that um, we don't use as often or as readily as we as a society probably should. 
seems like medication seems to be one of the first things that um, we attempt to help help a problem, or, but it tends to just put a Band-Aid on the problem. I think there are a lot of other ways that we can look to um, address some of these symptoms that we're seeing. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is just healthy living, um, decreasing stress through uh, working out and eating healthy and um, being you know, um, more conscious of um, our environment and what we're putting into our bodies and um, doing things like yoga and meditation and, you know, just different, more natural ways to reduce stress and to be healthy overall. So I definitely think looking at um, our needs more holistically as opposed to um, just only thinking about the use of medication or, or using medication is, is the only way to combat some of these symptoms is, is not a good thing. I think it's something that we've done a lot of that we should probably probably get away from. Um, it's just not. And we also have found that these medicines have a lot of side effects now that some right. of our young people are experiencing that um, – have made the the side effects are even worse than the original symptoms, you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the families have regretted putting their young people on medicine, and and a lot of African-American people especially don't agree with the use of medication to, to, you know, to help their young people. The the problem with that is that a lot of times they don't agree with establishing more effective parenting practices either, and we see that that, also is a big help to um, decreasing symptoms in children and in families, um, just consistent and effective parenting practices. But a lot of times I find that when we try to assist or coach, parent coach some of um, the parents in the families that are having a lot of problems, they're resistant to that as well. So it's kind of like, you know, the medication, does that need to be the first thing we look at? Not necessarily at all, but do we need to be open to uh, employing a lot of other interventions and different techniques? Yes, you know, we have to realize that there is a problem. There are some other things that could possibly fix this, and we need to try these things um, at least, you know, if we're not going to do the medication or before we try the medication. Krishana, do you um, do you prescribe um, medication when necessary, or, or or do you look at other alternatives as well? I do not. I do not prescribe medications. Um, okay. And there is uh, actually make sure. within our clinic. Yet yeah, you would have to have. There is a pediatrician within our clinic, but she does not prescribe medications at our clinic. You would have to go to a psychiatrist or your primary care physician in order to get um, a prescription. For okay. a diagnosis, okay. mm-hmm. so it's not upfront. So when you're dealing with them, you're really dealing with them from the from the roots and the cores when you're when you're talking to these mm-hmm. families. Yeah, looking at it from a, a systematic point of view of who all is involved: the child, the family, the school, the community, and then working from that piece. And if they ref- we refer them, you know, to a psychiatrist or um, their primary care physician for further treatment, whether it be medication. Um, or not, we would do a referral out. We would never do it within the clinic. Okay. Now, I know from, from, from for both of you all in your line of work, you've seen a lot of things, you know, households with having absent fathers um, and maybe some having absent mothers. How important is it to foster healthy parent-child relationships to aid in um, positive physical, emotional, and mental development? Um, 
Stephanie, if you want to take that first. Oh, I think it's very important in, in our business, Family Restoration Services. That's exactly what we we focus on, healthy parent-child relationships, um, because we realize that it has such a significant impact on the outcomes of the entire family, which impacts our community, which impacts society, and which in, impacts everyone, um, because we feel like the the family and um, the sense of family has gotten lost from many of our communities, and we feel like it's very important that we help to restore that. Um, And so working with fathers, mothers, and children all together, in fact, uh, when we accept a referral from any agency, when we go into the home, the first thing we do at Family Restoration Services is talk about the commitment that is needed from everyone that is involved with the child. Um, We do not allow the child to be just the identified patient and to be seen as um, the person or the one individual needing help. We begin the whole process by saying that this whole family needs intervention. Um, This child is a product of you. There's a symptom of something going on here, and we have to address um, everyone here. And so to that end, we Look to everyone, and that means if dad's there, dad's included, if mom's there, mom's included. Um, if they're absent but their the whereabouts are known, we find them, we bring them to sessions, we go look for them, um, because a lot of times their absence is a catalyst to a lot of the problems that we're having anyway. Um, and mm. so we, you know, um, in our business, we we look for the dad. We'll bring him to a session. You know, we do a lot of therapeutic sports and recreational activities, and we have times gone and look for dads and 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 brought them to basketball games when their children are are um, playing basketball. We've used these kinds of um, situations to provide you know, just some kind of catharsis for um, a lot of the things that the children have been experiencing from the absence of loved ones, from the absence of parents in particular. And so we really foster the family, uh, the parent-child connection because it's so key in establishing health, um, a healthiness in the family and full functioning of the family. A lot of times the roles we find are so confused and so skewed and, you know, child is parenting mom and, and mom's not there or dad's not there and dad drops in. And it's just so dysfunctional um, that we feel like helping to bring some kind of uh, restoration to the dynamic of what a family should look like, both spiritually, um, physically, uh, emotionally, you know, with the father being the one who is making the primary, primarily making those decisions and, and working to take care of his his family and mom, really being nurturing and loving and taking care of, of the children and the children um, falling in line with that kind of hierarchy is something that we strive for. It's difficult in many times because, as you all know, you know we've just gotten away from how how that looks and how that used to look and um, how once upon a time was very very functional and worked very well. But so it's difficult to reestablish that in many times. But it's something we definitely strive to where we place a high, a very high value on um, everyone in the family working together to resolve some of the conflict and. Um, some of the other um, things that are going on, issues that are going on within the family unit. And, and um, Kushana, what about you and, and, and the organization that you work with? Um, it's really important that we see everyone who is touching the life of the child or whoever the client is because 
especially with your parent-child relationship, when you have a good relationship with your mother, with your father, it tends to make you feel more secure. Um, You tend to have a higher self-esteem. You feel confident. You feel as if you're able to trust. Um, the people who are providing care for you. And when you're able to trust those primary caregivers and know that this is a safe place for me, I can learn from this person, um, then you're able to take that and then use it in how you relate to others when you're in the community, when you're in your school, when you're with your teacher. And so if you respect your mother and you love your mother or you love your father and you respect your father, then those things begin to show and and you see the fruits of the parent-child relationship within the different settings that this child or this adult person that's come from this parent-child relationship, wherever the setting is, you see that because the relationship is healthy. And so it's important that you make sure that you don't just isolate one person out of the family context and say, you are the issue, Um, let's fix you. You have to bring everybody to the table so that, um, it can be an overall successful outcome. Now, I know, Stephanie, um, you know, with, with the private practice that you have, you you all offer, um, a, I mean, a various array of services. I wanted to kind of learn more about that and, and, and some of the results that you all have seen working with the youth and the families. Yeah, I think um, we provide some more non-conventional kinds of interventions um, for young people. Mr. Fonja is really passionate about health and healthy living and sports and recreational programs and how all of the skills that are generally gained out of those programs are transferable into other um, environments such as school and in the home, just teamwork and um, effective communication and depending on each other and those kinds of things we find are effective in establishing more healthy relationships in other settings. And so what we have done is provided just a larger array of um therapeutic sports and recreational activities for our young people after school that really focus on um, debriefing um, challenges um, and overcoming challenges and um, curbing negative attitudes and behaviors, um, problem solving, communicating effectively with peers. And so while it's a fun activity, we really focus on the therapeutic value of those activities and we and we look to help the children to translate the skills that they've learned across into other environments. And so they do they have boxing, you know, that's the school of hard knocks and we help them to curb negative aggression. And we have a skateboarding well, young people can skateboard and they can be in BMX, and that works well for some of our young people who have really high or really um, intense thrill-seeking behaviors um, and don't know how really to control those impulses. So we help them to rechannel those. Um, track and field, basketball, football. And what we do is we take our young people with emotional needs. We provide them with a therapeutic agent, someone who escorts them into an environment where, with non-disabled peers. And so we find some of our young people are, you know, they're running track with AAU. Um, they're playing on a basketball team with non-disabled or non-emotionally disturbed youth, and they just have someone there who assists them with the challenges that they come up with so they're not constantly kicked off the teams. And we find that that stickability and that them remaining there and gaining all those skills has been so valuable because some of them have um, come off of medications they have um, been moved from rest- very restrictive environments such as private day schools to less restrictive environments. Um, they've been able to learn better communication, um, just very positive outcomes. And one of our um, better, one of our newer services that we've started to do and um, 
that has really been successful is family finding when we have begun to look for biological family members of foster care youth because the outcomes for our foster care youth have been so dire. They have been so negative. We're finding that so many of our children are excellent care at 21, 22 years old. Six months later, they're homeless. They're without benefits. They don't have the basic skills um, just to make it, um, you know, past couple of months. And so what we've begun to do is try and connect them before they age out to just some to some kind of permanency. Um, you know, we we don't think about a lot of times, oftentimes when you know, Christmas time comes for a foster care youth who's exited care, Thanksgiving comes, where do they go? You know, who is their permanent family? And so we've begun to do that. And we found lots of success with that. That is probably one of our most rewarding services. It's a value that we have at Family Restoration Services where we feel like families should stay together, should be together, and that even includes children who've been taken from their family for reasons that um, at that time were were necessary at that time, but it doesn't mean 10 years later or 15 years later that those problems still exist. And it doesn't mean that even if they do exist, that they still can't be linked to their their family um, so that they can know where they who they are and where they come from. And so that's one of our services that we provide to, along with just plain old individual and family counseling. That is amazing. That is so amazing. Now, I mean, the, the one thing I, I, I think about with, with you all dealing with, you know, the families and the youth and adolescents, how do you all not become attached? How do you all separate that attachment from from people that you work with um, and, and, and knowing how to balance the empathy with with the, with reasoning, in, in a sense? Krishana, if you want to start first. Um. You you can't detach but so much because if you detach, you know, so far away from the client, then you really aren't able to, to meet them where they are and you're really not able to connect with them in a real manner. Um, so I think that it's important to know um, who you are and be have a sense of self-awareness about where you are with certain topics, certain issues, some things I am just not able to deal with on a clinical level because, I know that it, it bothers me and it, it's something that I'm not able to handle because I'm still human. And I think you have to be very aware of who you are and what you're capable of working with. Um, and, again, you have to know, just keep in mind what your boundary is with the client and make sure that you know that. I mean, there are certain things you just cannot do. I mean, some people get so attached they want to come to your home. They want to come home with you. I've had a, a child ask, can you, can, can you be my mommy? You know, and those things, those are things that you just have to deal with in that moment and be able to reaffirm the child without making them feel as if they're being rejected, but also knowing your place as a clinician to maintain that boundary and make sure that you're not um, crossing any ethical, um, you know, limits that you're not supposed to. So um, I think with me, it's a struggle. And honestly, you know, to be quite frank, I have to I have to pray about it. I go in every day of my job because I am dealing with somebody's life. This is not... A cashier position where I deal with money or a computer job. This is someone's life that I have the honor and privilege to be a part of. And so I really have to make sure that my relationship is right with with God and knowing that I am able to deal and handle with this with care because this is precious cargo that I have, and that's how I take it. And then making sure that I don't take it out on 
my own family members or my own friends because what you hear on a day-to-day basis, whether it's in my outpatient setting with couples, with families, with children, with adolescents, or whether it's in the clinic setting with just the children, what you hear and what you see, it can, it can have a, an impact on you if you if you don't have the right balance. Mm. And, and, and Stephanie, what about you? How have you dealt with that? I concur. You know that it's it's different. It's difficult at times um, to separate. You know, we definitely, as people um, in this helping profession, we're here to help. And so I find myself. I found myself plenty of times up at night wondering what more could I do. You know, how else can we provide assistance? But I think what's most important is remaining healthy yourself, so that you can make. Um, the distinction between when you're being a help and when you're being a hindrance or when you're enabling or when you're um, not giving the family what they need so that they can go on when you're not there because that was the that's the whole other point about um, helping family to make permanent linkages. The truth is we're just not going to be there um, past the time that is appointed for us to be. And what I tend to tell families is that while you can appreciate my service, while the service is here, you have to be able to appreciate the fact that you can sustain without me. And that is more important then, you know, even this time that we have together because there's going to be a time when, you know, I'm not going to be coming over here or you're not going to be coming to the office or you're going to be graduated and, you know, you're going to exit care. and You know, things change, life changes. And I think, you know, from from we're always preparing for discharge, always preparing for, um, for the family to be self-sufficient, always pre- preparing the family to not need us. And I think if we keep that in mind, a lot of times it's, it's helpful in um, setting those boundaries. I think a lot of times I, when I start to address the needs of the family, I do look at their basic needs before I start to look at their clinical needs, and I'll find that some of them really need just some very basic things, just some just some food and, you know, um, just clean clothes. And, you know, and a lot of times we will address that first, and that will tend to have them to be, start to become clingy, you know, and start to ask for things. But it's very important, as Krishana said, to set limits in the beginning um, that, you know, we want to see you eat every day and we want to see you have clean clothes and to go to school and we want to see you in a safe environment. But this is first and secondary is to get to some of these more significant issues that are hindering you from being successful um, in, in all environments. So it's just being healthy yourself, finding something yourself that you can do to release. Um, I find it more difficult for me sometimes because my husband also works in the profession. A lot of times we find ourselves talking a lot about different clients. We have mutual clients um, talking about different clients and talking about, you know, how we could do this better and what we could do. And, and we've just, you know, we have just come to the place where we say, you know what, at this such a particular time at night, this is going to end our conversation and we're going to pick this back up in the morning because we want to remain healthy and we can't be healthy right. and we can't help other people, you know, if we're not healthy ourselves. And so, you know, it's just a choice. It's kind of you have to be very conscious of it, um, I think, a lot because it's just so easy to become enmeshed. It's so easy to you'd give more than what you really should be given um, just because your heartstrings are pulled, you know. Now, how do we, um, you know, how do we keep this dialogue going? How do we keep, you know, just talking about it in our community? What are some things that you all recommend and, and ways for people to reach out to your organizations and, and, and some of the things that you all are working on? Rashawn, you can go ahead. I think there are a lot of things that you can do as far as staying connected. 
number one, when you see someone going through um, difficulty, don't be afraid to reach out. And if you don't have the solution, maybe helping them to know that there is something or someone out there that can help them through the process. Um, there are lots of um, great programs around. As a matter of fact, my cousin, she um, is the founder of an organization called I Choose to Live, um, and she has a website that has lots of information on helping people to make positive choices about their life, um, whether it's basically it's uh, mainly focused on children and adolescents, and I think that's a good outlet to be able to know your resources and know what you can refer to people. A lot of times people just have a lack of knowledge, and so they can't help people because they don't know what to tell them. They don't know what to give them. So by being involved, I feel like, you know, when you grow up, some people say, I want to be the best doctor I can be. I want to be the best teacher I can be. But if you're a parent, um, and that's one of the most important jobs you can ever have in your life. Wouldn't you do the same? So wouldn't you go and read books? Wouldn't you go and go to trainings and go to research and do things of that nature? If you're in a relationship with somebody um, and you wanted to be the best spouse or you wanted to be the best uh, girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever you're calling yourself, would you take the time out to read a book or to go to a class together or go to counseling together? So I think it's a matter of educating um, yourself. It's a matter of not being afraid to talk about it to people who are in your same peer group, um, to people in your church, whatever the community is that you are in. Be open with it and let people know that there is help if they do need it. What about... Um what are, other, what are some ways? How can people reach out to your organization, your the, the family restorative services that you all have going on? Well, generally, well, right now we're operative in the city of Hampton, um, in the state of Virginia, and generally our services are accessed through all of the major child service entities, court services, um, okay. court services, social services, schools. But we are de- social services, obviously. But we're definitely looking to branch out to. Um, to, to different areas and, and start to provide that services. We're working now on just the model, um, developing a model that can be used in different localities and different locations where people can say this is a model that has been tried and true, that people are, um, the children are really benefiting and families are growing and they're um, becoming more connected to natural supports and less connected to um, unnatural supports. And so right now we're in the city of Hampton. We, our offices are located off of Woodland Road. Um, um, our office number is 251-6376, and that's area code 757. And so certainly we um, enjoy partnering with people, enjoy partnering with the other people in the community, such as media arts programs and things that can provide our young people with healthy outlets um, so that they can be um, realizable or healthy self-concept and that they can realize that they have something to offer and they can reduce the effects of trauma, um, reduce the effects of poor family dynamics and all of these other societal ills that are plaguing them. And we just try to provide them with very healthy outlets to do that. So far, um, we've been finding a lot of success with this model. And, Krishana, how can how can they reach out to your organization and, and, and the places that you work if they have any questions or anything like that? Sure. Well, Tidewater Child Development Clinic, it offers comprehensive evaluations. Um, so there's a psychology um, department there. There's a social worker, which is myself, an education consultant, speech um, and language evaluation process, and also a pediatrician. If they're looking to have their child ages 
birth through 21 seen at the clinic. Um, we are located at 830 South Hampton Avenue in Norfolk, Virginia, and the telephone number is 757-683-8770. And if you are looking um, for outpatient therapy, whether you have a child um, or an adolescent or if it's a family unit or you are um, someone who's in relationship with another person in need of couple therapy, I can be reached at Christian Psychotherapy Services in the downtown office on York Street, and that number is 757-622-2114. So what I would love for you ladies to do is, is, um, you know, along with um, speaking it on air, please send me that information as well, the phone number and links, and I will post that on my blog for for, um, people to reach out to you all if they have any further questions or just want to learn more or become more involved. Um, uh, so thank you, ladies, for joining me, Krishana and, and Stephanie. You all were very helpful, very insightful, and um, hopefully people were able to walk away with something um, and not being afraid to talk about this. I think that's the biggest thing, um, not being afraid to talk about it. So, yes, ladies. Well, I'd like please, to please thank make, you. Yeah, no problem. Please thank send you, me that information. Thank you for having the platform. It's important to talk about these types of things, and so I appreciate the opportunity. I'm very honored um, that you asked. So thank you. And likewise, yeah. likewise, it was it was a great opportunity for for me and for um, our small agency to be able to share this information with with um, your listeners. And I do uh, extremely appreciative of the opportunity to do so. And anytime you need any additional assistance, or um, if we can, if I can be of any other support, please feel free um, to give us a call again, and we'd be more more than happy to do so. I will definitely do that. So, again, yeah, just make sure you all send me that information and I'll post it up on my blog for all the listeners. Um, thank you, ladies. You all have a great evening. Thank you. You too. Thank Good you. night. Good night. Again, thank you to my callers, Krishana and um, Stephanie. And to all the listeners, you can catch this episode and other archive shows on brownskin.com. spelled D-R-N-S-K-N, and also podcasting on iTunes by searching Brownskin in the iTunes store. Please tune in tomorrow night um, for the new episode called Living Slash Dating with an STD, Breaking the Stigma. Two of my guests um, are living with HIV and herpes, and they're going to share their stories, their experiences, and are just breaking down the stigma in, in the African-American community about living with these uh, diseases. You know, any questions or comments that you may have to info at brownskin.com. Until next time, brownskin speak.